Okay, everybody, I wasn't actually ill last week. That was just a cover to cover up for my real plan, which was I was sneaking into number 10 Downing Street. And it didn't go all to plan. The first first couple of days, I did. I dressed up as a Tory. I snuck up to the front gate. They saw I had a chin. My cover was blown. I was sent on my way. My second attempt was dressing up as a policeman. I was inching my way minute by minute to the front door. Then a kid went by on a moped and I didn't immediately push him off. Again, my cover was blown. Finally, I just broke in for a window. Climbed through the lab where they harvest the souls of Gelflings to keep Tory lords alive. And then found what I was after. Theresa May's speech she'll be giving up and down the country. You know they say that all deals are created equal, but you look at me and you look at a people's vote and you can see that that statement is not true. See, normally if you go one-on-one -on -one with another deal, you've got a 50-50 chance of winning. But I'm a genetic freak and I'm not normal. But you've got a 25% chance, at best, that beat me. And then you add no deal into the mix and your chances of winning drastic go down. See, the freeway at December 11th, you've got a 33 one-third chance of winning. But I got a 66 two-third chance of winning because a no deal knows it can't beat me. And it's not even going to try. So a people's vote, you take your 33 one-third chance minus my 25% chance, and you got an eight one-third chance of winning at December 11th. But then you take my 75% chance of winning, and if it was to go one-on-one -on -one and then add 66 two-thirds percent, and I got 141 two-third chance of winning at December 11th. A people's vote, the numbers don't lie, and they spell disaster for you at December 11th. Hello and welcome to We Don't Talk About the Weather. Political discussion from the outside may just look like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk news and politics. Uh, Hugh, how many wages have you suppressed this week? Um, as all a of them. podcaster who works for free. Um, specifically one person's, Oscatchy's wages. I've been working very hard and suppressing his wages by putting out just free stories about trying not to perv on women. <laughs> um, just hassling other women online for free. Um, suppressing the wages he gets from uh, Murdoch for doing that. I imagine he's paid specifically for doing that. Um, and for undoing my shirt, just a button too much. He does that a lot. He's got that real um, guerrilla journalist chic going on. His avi has, he does. His avi has upgraded. It used to be a kind of street art thing of yeah. him with like a helmet on, and now it's mm. him in all his like war correspondent gear. It's very... Um, I don't know. I significantly dislike... Oscatergy and everything he stands for, mm -hmm. uh, and if he will take that as a that you're a, an Assad apologist and a murdering monster, mm -hmm. um, but he's really pushing that angle hard, almost to the point of parody. Oh yeah, you know? no, I'm saying, like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, you know, you did some. Uh, well, I don't know if you did some good work, but you covered like worthy things like refugee stuff and and all mm. that kind of thing, but. You really feel like you're pushing an aesthetic way harder than you are at an actual political cause here. Oh yeah, yeah, he's um, yeah, he is pretty unbearable. Um, but yeah, I, I did suppress his wages. Um, yeah, and James Ball. Well, actually, with James Ball, uh, did you silence I, I got, working class voices? Well, actually, with James Ball, I got paid specifically by Putin to put fake reviews on Amazon, like he was complaining about. <laughs> I was, that was me. That was me. I was the one. It was me. <laughs> I was the one that gave the bad review. I mean, what would it be? I mean, how how would that even work? How would we? How would us doing this suppress the wages of quote unquote real journalists? Um, when we are the realest journalists imaginable, we are the definitely. wage suppressionist realist journalists. <laughs> um, well, we're not. 
<laughs> it's so dumb. It's yeah. so it's so ridiculous, and it it's it's because they they've got this thing, and it's like there's um they talk about it on Street Fight Radio, um that for a long time having the idea that some of these people who write for these places are smart people and that yes. they know what they're talking about. Yeah. And then the more you talk to them and the more you watch them, the more you realise that they're really not. And like they understand some words. <laughs> like they understand the notion they understand that the notion of if you do free labour, yeah. that you are stealing a wage from someone else. Yeah. But then they've taken that and just applied it to everything. Like, you know when I stroke the dog, or I, I preen my dog, I, I brush him with a brush and I make sure his fur's nice. Yeah, you occasionally lick stu- the back <clears throat> and scruff of his neck yep. to, if he's got a piece of a piece of fur out of place. Yep. You lick it, you give him a tongue bath. Yep, uh, I do. You love it. Um, but that doesn't mean I've stolen the job of a dog groomer. Because I was never going to take him to a dog groomer. It's not like there's a fixed number. It's not. This isn't Peep Show where they're saying journalism's full. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, like this in the same way that immigrants don't necessarily, other than in very specific industries, like lower the wages of the people who are working there because the employers will find new ways of employing them that actually don't impact the hmm. wages of people still employed in it. They will put other people out of work, maybe, but like not. Yeah, but it's it, so like speci- it's so like tidy and specific to the point of it not really mattering. Yeah, it's um, saying there can be no further journalistic outlets. Yes. Uh, we can only have these ones. And if you work for free in them, you are suppressing the wages. Well, to be fair, if any more left-wing podcasts open up, then Rupert Myers will never work again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and it's just too much competition. There's not enough, there's not enough space for, for, um, for real journalists um, <laughs> who sneak in, slide into women's DMs. Um, sneak onto the shelves in old Victorian houses and just <laughs> angle themselves towards the bed where an air, a sick heir or heiress can stare up at it and then see uh, Rupert Myers staring at them yeah. directly in the face. Um, but it's actually all a scheme from an evil uncle to gain the inheritance. Yeah. So, you know. Another thing that Rupert Myers does tend to do is stare unblinking for hours at security camera footage, so like, like as it goes crackly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see the little doll moving in a room on its own. Sometimes I have seen him on TV. He does move completely without Jesus. the publicity there. Pretty fucking rich as well for somebody who worked for Wikipedia. Uh, not Wikipedia, um, WikiLeaks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, his his about face on that maybe is the most disappointing thing about him because it's like you could probably you could probably come away from the dirty parts of WikiLeaks probably clean, mm. like probably all right. You're an investigative journalist. You believe information should be free yeah. and all that jazz. Um, What's important, the information or the jazz? Um, data or the jazz. The data or the jazz, sorry. Um, you could probably come away with that with some kind of like cred and just then going into defending the most staid positions possible is incredibly disappointing. Mm. I think that's most disappointing about investigative journalists when you like, when they go like that, mm. you know? It's, it's lame and shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of lame and shit. Okay. Uh, Last time we recorded, we had... I can't even remember what we said about Brexit. It was probably literally all invalid by now. Yeah, probably. I think um, the deal had just been come out. Yeah, so this we recorded the day before um, she was going to put... Theresa May was going to put the uh, withdrawal bill uh, to the cabinet. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the following day was expected to be a tidal wave of resignations. It wasn't quite that. No. There were uh, Dominic Rabb, the uh, EU Brexit secretary. Mm-hmm. Uh, he resigned, as did Twella Braverman, his, I think, his junior secretary. Esther McVeigh, the Work and Pensions secretary, mm. resigned, saying she could accept it. Uh, Shayla Svara, the Northern Ireland Secretary. Um, basically, only people very much in the hot zone of what the EU withdrawal bill would hmm. uh, affect. Um, and the various fallout of that has been we've got Amber Rudd inexplicably back as Work and Pension Secretary. Well, yeah. Um, I thought in organisations it was generally a rule that you didn't appoint Amber Rudd to any position. <laughs> just in general, just her. she's not particularly great. Um, she's pretty good at taking the fall for something that you've done, that you did. <laughs> um, so it'd be interesting to see. Like, yeah. Maybe Amber Rudd will take the blame for um, for the figgy... Brexit. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a... The EU referendum. Yeah, she'll get the blame for that. No, um, She'll be leader in two months. No, she... No, <laughs> no, she won't. Out of all of them, she's she in. No, she's play. in the Philip Hammond box. She appeals to absolutely nobody, even she's got a majority by of like fifty. Even it's by too din- much of a risk. Yeah, that too. As funny as yeah. it would be. <laughs> um, Jacob Rees-Mogg made a lot of sounds. Probably his most prominent sound so far about uh, running a no-confidence vote against Theresa May. Um, yeah. He actually came out and said, yeah. "I'm putting in a letter." I encourage everybody, all Brexiters, to put mm. in letters. Um, he no couldn't even did. get 48. 48 no. was what they needed to get. And well, he yeah, get the it. rumour I thought... I Bear in mind, there are 60 members of the European Research Group, yeah. which is the Eurosceptic hard, hard right of the Tory party. Yeah. And he can't yeah. get 48 letters. Well, the thing that I saw, and I think I told you about it, the rumour I read, there's, um, they had the numbers. Yeah. They're like 48 letters. Um, but then what happens is, what's his name of the 1922 committee has to go asking the ones who'd sent the letters like a year ago <laughs> yeah. to say like, do you still, are you still in favour of this? Yeah. Letter? And apparently Theresa May had sent like about 15, had got 15 or so loyal people to send in their letters specifically to like smoke out people like Jacob Rees-Mogg oh, to, to make get, them do it to get and the then numbers, just withdraw the letters. To get the numbers up so yeah. that people thought everyone was on their side. Right, yeah. I see. And then yeah, withdraw yeah. the letters. Um, huh. Which is a level of forward planning that I am, my experience of seeing Theresa May over the last eight years, I think she is incapable of. <laughs> but maybe some of the people that she works with. Yeah, but it was fucking over people who she works with as opposed to people who she doesn't. So, mm-hmm. you know, she's a lot more focused. She's a very focused person <laughs> when it comes to sending vans around her Indian restaurants, but not not so much when she's got to go in and see them every day. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the EU withdrawal bill's on the table now. Mm-hmm. Um, the It's passed the European Commission, mm-hmm. uh, which is the, I believe, the that's the unelected a bit of uh, that all the uh, Parliament sent to. It's like a House of Lords yeah, of yeah. the EU. That's the unelected bit. The EU Parliament, the democratic bit, is ex- expected to pass it basically as a rubber stamp, which tells you more about the EU than maybe you would. Yeah, you would think. Um, and the it's got to pass the House of Parliament. It's got to pass the Commons. Yeah. Um, that vote will be held on December the eleventh. She was holding out on the date. Um, for a while, but the whip, uh, chief whip announced it in the Commons. Um, she's really going hell for leather. The way this mini kind of mini political terrain seems to be working out for the next kind of 
two weeks or so. Yeah. She's going to run a Project Fear to yep. try and really up the risk of a no deal. Um, I have the feeling that this will work with the people who it's meant to work with. Yeah. It will keep most of the Tories on side. I well, think if anything, that, this, this lack of people coming into like the no confidence for her proves that the hardline Brexiters are all cowards. Now, you see, the thing is, I reckon that while they might not want to get rid of Theresa May, <coughs> which, after all, is not necessarily like getting rid of Theresa May is not necessarily a Eurosceptic move. Mm. I think voting against the EU withdrawal bill is. Mm. I, I still think that the more of them are going to vote for the deal rather than not because they're cowards and because, let's face it, look at them, they're heavily invested in the status quo mm. of how things work at the moment. Yeah, there aren't many of the Tories... They might have an intellectual opposition to it, but they a, know what side they're There's a couple them. of Tories who stand to make significant amounts of money from a no-deal Brexit. Um, yeah. And they made money from the referendum vote when the vote came out and the pound crashed. Yeah, um, sure. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg would make loads of money from a no-deal Brexit because he's invested entirely in countries that the EU doesn't deal with because they're sketchy as fuck. <laughs> that's literally like that's yeah. that's been known for a while. But um, there's quite there's a couple of them like that, but not many because not all Tories are as terrible businessmen as Jacob Rees-Mogg yeah. and only dealing with um, well. I say Tim, well, Tim Pot dictatorships rather than respectable dictatorships. <laughs> respectable dictatorships like Saudi Arabia, yeah, Uzbekistan, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, and the the thing, the thing one that's really more su- well, not surprising is um, Remainer's response to the deal, <laughs> um, which is just delightful because, like, the deal is shit and it cements in well, it means that you can't be left wing. Yeah. Isn't it? There's like there there is specific yeah. bits in there about how it's up to the EU whether you you know increase the wealth size of the welfare state, take nationalise things, that kind of shit. Yeah, yeah. So um, there's the there's a few elements um, that I've noted down here. So the future trade agreement, mm-hmm. um, the future UK EU relationship um, would aim to achieve a close relationship on services, including financial services, because of course mm-hmm. uh, it is the civil service. Um, I think Ollie Robbins is the name. Who's yeah. largely negotiated this, yeah. and he's doing what a high-level um, civil servant would do, which is prioritise financial services. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of also, I think it will be it, with the with the Brexiteers and how many will vote for the deal as opposed to not. I think it depends on their level of to put too fine a point on it, like provinciality. Yeah. How close are they to the commanding heights of the finance sector in how like London-centric are they? Yeah. How close are they to big capital as opposed to local or, or national shards of, of, of the capitalist class? Speaking of which, do you see um, fucking Brexit Tim is doing the same thing as Theresa May? You know Theresa May's going around the country now doing her speeches? Yes. She was in um, Ireland. She did Ireland and Wales today. Um <laughs> But it'll be interesting to see how much longer she spends in England compared to, to you know, half the like five minutes in Wales, five yeah. minutes in Northern Ireland. But um, Brexit Tim's doing the same thing, going around to a bunch of Weatherspoons, giving speeches and reassuring people about a no deal Brexit. The best thing about that is, would I would pay so much money to go to a Weatherspoons on a Tuesday afternoon drinking Blue Lagoons and having Brexit Tim explain to me a no-deal Brexit. That'd be such a good way to spend a day. It's enough to make you choke on your five-bean chilli. <laughs> yeah, I'm really tempted to like look it up and maybe go. Because he is really 
He's so emblematic, though. He yeah, is, yeah, he's the he's, perfect. He's, he's that. He's yeah. national capital. Mm-hmm. Like, entirely invested in this country. He couldn't... He probably couldn't make his business uh, international if he tried. Well, no, because every other country has been to binge drinking and cheap fry-ups as us. Oh, I think Germany could give you a run for that. No, they're not. They don't have big breakfasts in Germany. Oh, uh, maybe. <laughs> so that continental breakfast. The only time I've gone to Germany, they got like fucking salami, and that was great. Yeah, um, Germany, tr- Germany have small breakfast, small dinner, and a massive lunch. Ah, That's why a lot okay. of their flats don't have kitchens. <laughs> no, seriously. That's... Yeah. Um, but um, yeah. Uh, where do we want? So yeah, so he'd, yeah. he'd never worked there. So, but I want um, maybe maybe we'll do a, a, a well, we don't talk about the weather <laughs> live recording. I'll just go there and just put <laughs> yeah. him on TikTok. I'll put little skips bits of him on TikTok. <laughs> put him on Periscope. No, I'm on t- just on TikTok. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, this this deal will also give um, London's financial markets only a basic level of access to the EU's markets. Yep. Similar to the US and Japan. Um, I thought it was quite interesting on um, the backstop arrangement that she's negotiating in order to keep Northern Ireland within the same customs agreement as the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, the agreement says the UK must observe a level playing field commitments on competition and state aid, as yeah. well as employment and environment standards and tax. Mm-hmm. So basically, it is partially intended to make sure that the UK business can't undercut mm-hmm. uh, EU businesses while in the transition arrangement. This isn't mm. um, for going ahead. Although, given the difficulty of it so far, this transition arrangement could be extended. Yeah. Um, but obviously it would also, on a legal in a legal sense anyway, stymie any attempts to kind of bring things back into public ownership yep. um, and... Like minimum wage agreements and yeah. things like that. Well, well Cron's already said he's going to make it last as long as possible because he, unless he gets everything he wants on fish, he literally said that today, I think, or yesterday. Really? Yeah. There was. There well, Macron says a lot of things. There was a and, fisheries you know, thing. Like that... I'm popular. <laughs> I am the golden god. <laughs> yeah, he does say um, like that. <laughs> yeah, I think there was something on the fisheries whereby the only way that fish would be included in any kind of future customs arrangement would be if. The EU fishermen had access to UK mm. territorial waters, which again, none of this. This seems like a worse arrangement, by which yeah. I mean it's exactly the same arrangement, except there's no chance of it ever changing yeah. because there's no democratic input. Yeah. Like the EU is barely democratic as it is, mm. and the UK is looking at taking its only democratic kind of means of influencing it out. Yeah, it's a terrible, it terrible about, like, deal. Some of the hardcore remainers and the who are like kind of in favour of it because it would do what they want, which is they don't really care about the notion of like choice. No, but it would mean that you could the the furthest to the left you could have is Tony Blair. They don't care about, um, but they would mean that you could only have Tony Blair forever. What fucking pisses me off about it is that they don't care about actual politics they're not interested in that what they're interested in is resetting the terrain Mm -hmm. this crisis this chaos this uncertainty that has brought all of these new uh potential vectors forward like Mm. these potential choices these potential opportunities forward Mm. and i'm not speaking like a brexiteer here i mean the opportunities i mean are a resurgent left a return to public ownership and a toppling of the power of the financial sector and the capitalist class generally. Yes. Those are the opportunities I'm talking about. Yeah, because you're going to put in sanctions if we start hanging people in the street. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to get that's the kind of thing that they get a bee in their bonnet about that kind of thing. <laughs> um, 
But they're so desperate to return to a very particular form of politics, one that they can control access to, one mm. that they can, they can get a grasp on, mm. that they're willing to accept this terrible, terrible deal, despite having spent two years trying to tank the Labour Party and any progressive measures generally, of, yeah. like engaging with the reality of the situation that is Brexit, that it, mm. it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly the only way they're actually accepting that Brexit is going to happen the only mould they have is the thing that they've been presented to by the person who they've been calling like traitor and yeah. all that kind of stuff for, for, for two years. Yeah. It's incredibly fucking galling. And like this, um, what's the deal with this TV debate I've been hearing about? Okay. So Theresa May. Yes. Um, she said, I want to debate you. She said, debate. It was like an interview with the sun, wasn't yeah, it? Where she, she said, said Jeremy Corbyn, debate me, you knave. Yes. And she thought that Jeremy Corbyn would say, no, I don't want to debate you, and look a fool. And Jeremy Corbyn went, yeah, all right. It's uh, literally what I asked for during the general election. Yeah. Um, there does seem to be a couple of things that have happened with it, though. For example, the notion of there being no... F like, as soon as I heard it, of course, the fuppies are annoyed, because they would have been annoyed if he'd said no. They're annoyed that he said yes. Um, Wait, why are they annoyed because he said yes? Because how dare he? Because he's... Um, James O'Brien summed it up perfectly. His his opinion is actually a really good kind of weather vane for these for these loons, um, but he said it's it will be ins it will be insane and worthless because you'll have Theresa May who voted Remain and happened to be the Brexit position, and Jeremy Corbyn who voted Brexit but and is pretending to be a Remainer. I thought that was settled. I thought that no, was just a no. a brief. Also, Jeremy Corbyn conspiracy is theory. Um, Jeremy Corbyn. There is literally no difference between Jeremy Corbyn and the ERG. Apparently, according to smart man James O'Brien with his smart man book about how to be right all the time. Um, but one of the things that is interesting is Jeremy Corbyn's team are the ones that have said that they don't want anyone from uh, People's Vote represented in, in the debate. Sure. Which you shouldn't because that will just be, that'll make, that'll be all the debate will be about. Um, because this, this is, a, it's like, of course he's going to have some some um, ideas about what he'd like this debate to be. Mm. Because also, Theresa May does, because they want the debate to be on the on the day of the last live episode, the last episode of It's Always, um, not It's Always Sunny, of <laughs> I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. So that means it can't be on ITV. Um, so it would have to be probably on the BBC. And if it's on the BBC, her current director of communications used to be senior position there and has a lot of sway over it and they, she's got she wants it to be on four very specific things like on part like on like immigration security that kind of stuff with regards to specifically this Brexit deal yeah because the Tories are working on the notion that Jeremy Corbyn doesn't understand details um and wouldn't be able to win a debate like that did they watch his debates um, no obviously <laughs> but um but also that's that's their their logic um also, the cabinet floated the notion of there being a people's vote refer um, representative there, and it being Tony Blair. What? <laughs> because no, because what would like you have a very delicate balance between you know like, like so, I'd say that people's positions probably have barely changed that much. There's probably some Brexiters who've gone like, I'm now I'm kind of Remain. Polls don't suggest that Leave yeah. Remain has changed yeah. enough to. So when you've got such a fine thing, what effect. you want to do is you want to bring in the most powerful debater, the most powerful, the most Definitely not polarised. <laughs> like people don't have a, have polarised opinions about Tony Blair. Everyone just 
loves him. And he will be able to push you over the, over the line and you'll win. And Remain will win, everyone will be happy. That's why Theresa May said it. Yeah, that, I did see some... I haven't really been following it all that because it did seem to get walked back within oh, a yeah. couple of hours of suggesting it. And it does seem like a Because Alistair tactic. Campbell said, no, no, we'll lose. <laughs> Even Alistair Campbell, I don't think, is that stupid. <laughs> It does, uh, apparently, yeah, I've got a quote here. Jeremy Hunt argued in Cabinet that Theresa May should target Tony Blair as the real enemy because that would unite Brexiters. Uh, His colleagues feared this would lend Blair the credibility he currently lacks and would harm her. Hunt's proposal did not make it into the conclusions. It's like, I don't want to... This is what I mean when I say they've forgotten how to do politics Mm. and they don't want to do actual politics. Mm -hmm. Rather than engage in what every free speech liberal says they want, which yeah. is a nuanced, uh, constructive debate about the entire direction yeah. of the UK after this deal. They want to specifically arrange it into the Punch and Judy show that they've always said they hated. Mm-hmm. The This guy is the Remain. He is the pure Remain. No one is more Remain than this one. Mm-hmm. As opposed to Jeremy Corbyn, who did vote and campaign for Remain, but is dealing with also, the realities know, of what's actually happening. He probably voted for him. I don't, well, don't know who he, who he voted um, if he voted um, um, Remain or Leave because um, because it's an anonymous vote. Yeah. And in normal situations, people sort of respect anonymous votes, except when it comes to voting Tory, then everyone should be fucking flogged. Well, also, why did he spend all of his time for supporting Remain if he voted Brexit? He went on holiday in the middle of the referendum. <laughs> he did, but also I don't care. Because also, he put more effort in than I would have. Yes. Because, yeah. you know. Yeah. There's a, it's just, there's... They refuse to expand their viewpoints mm-hmm. to seeing what could be achieved with this Brexit vote. Mm-hmm. They have spent so long trying to put the genie back in the bottle that they've completely abandoned all rationality, all like probity, any kind of, like ability to analyse the situation for what it is. And it's why they've come up with such weird fucking things. They've become the right. They've become the Eurosceptics. You know, the Eurosceptics used to be the funny ones. They were the ones who would comment everything saying, EUSSR commissars won't allow us to... And they're doing that. Except they don't say EUSSR commissars. They just say USSR commissars. Chambers Mill works for the KGB. Yeah. It's so bizarre. And I'm, I'm not sure whether it's a deliberate thing because they think that that's how you be popular because Mm. let's face it the liberal left has always been scared of the right they have a distrust of its ability to like harness emotion in a way that they don't seem to be able to understand Mm -hmm. i don't think that's true i think that's overrated Mm. i think there's something more to the way that the right have mobilized it's especially its working class support over the last like 150 years Mm. but that's a topic for another time um but they, they're either mimicking it directly because they think that's what popularity is mm. or their minds have been driven so batshit by how this situ- whole situation has developed, how complicated and how convoluted it can seem if you haven't got, if you haven't got a solid set of principles and maybe like, let's face it, a Marxist heuristic, a class mm. analysis mm. to actually see what's going on. They've spent so long repressing mm. that proper a decent analysis of the situation because they've been in positions of power, soft power, but power, mm. that they 
cannot conceive of what this situation means and what what possible things could come out of it, what dynamics are at play. It's madness. It is. So our main section this week... Um, mm. A lot of commentators, when they seek to stress how important Brexit is to the survival of the British way of life or mm. whatever, raise the spectre of it being a constitutional crisis. And they talk about it being the biggest crisis since Suez. Mm. And I've had a problem with that for a while because I think it's like based on a misunderstanding of, of Suez. It's a historical reference that kind of bothers me. Like Suez was a political failure mm. and like a turning, with hindsight, a turning point in Britain's like post-imperial history. Mm. At worst, it was Anthony Eden, Eden and various other members of the government lying to the House of Commons about collaborating with Israel and France in order to wage war on Egypt. It's a political thing. Um, it was painful and jarring, the whole fallout of it, but it wasn't. Um, it didn't threaten the domestic like integrity of the political arrangements around no. the UK. For that matter, decolonisation didn't. No, there was no, there was no essence that like there was no no sign that like Parliament would cease functioning the way it did because India got its independence or yeah. African colonies got that got their independence. Yeah. Um, it didn't question the legitimacy of like the crown in parliament no. or anything like that. Um, for a more relevant example of a constitutional crisis that I think is somewhat similar to the situation we find ourselves in now, you'd have to go back to the 1910 People's Budget. Mm-hmm. Um, now look, this isn't as exciting <laughs> as wild notions about abolishing the police... <laughs> Or driving around, everybody driving around in Ferraris, which is what I understand modern socialism is now. <laughs> um, mining asteroids, all that kind of shit. Yeah. But it is quite important. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 1909. Let me take you back. A time completely different from 2018. People crammed into housing, <laughs> unable to keep up with the rent. Uh, huge segregation between rich and poor. Uh the rich earning sometimes as much as a hundred times the average wage. Can you imagine? Oh, Can you imagine a gap that large between the rich and poor? <laughs> um, and, you know, you're even selected for high-up jobs based on what school you went to. Jesus. Can you imagine? Oh, that, that wouldn't be allowed oh, now. Um, not in Blair's Britain. <laughs> it's, still, it's still 2000 to me, damn it. <laughs> yeah. Um, in this period, a fine, venerable political party had been overrun by radicals and firebrands who made demands so outrageous, conducted themselves so aggressively in the public sphere that they precipitated a constitutional crisis. I'm talking, of course, about the Liberals. What? <laughs> That's, yeah, the Liberal Party. <laughs> um, so in 1906, the yeah. Liberal Party won one of the largest landslides in electoral history, okay. winning 400 seats. With 30 going it's to much Labour. easier for the Liberals when hardly anyone in the country could vote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When half the country can't vote, suddenly it becomes a lot easier to kind of squeeze that in. Yeah. Um, 30 going to the uh, to various independent Labour MPs. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a wink and a nod arrangement with Liberals um, that they wouldn't stand in the same seats. Mm-hmm. Um, and 83 went to the Irish Nationalists, mm-hmm. which of course covered, at that point, the whole of... Uh, what's now the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, Across the floor, the Conservative and Unionist Party won only 157 seats. Mm. So that's like 400, 500 to 157. Huge. Yeah. Enormous. Uh, The Liberal Party 
used to be the party of kind of free trade and the, the Whiggish kind of liberal party, individual freedoms, working towards uh, eliminating outward kind of fetters on people's actions so that you would be able to participate in the capitalist economy like mm-hmm. free of any 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 drawbacks any any like you're free of your background and that kind yeah. of thing you can see how well it worked victorian era is known for kind of plucky young up-and-comers <laughs> uh, making their way to the top of whatever whatever institution they might like to target themselves at but yeah. um it had undergone something of a transformation by this point. Gladstone had retired in 1894. He'd been leader for fucking ever, for mm. like 30 years. Um, it had a big split over Irish home rule while Gladstone was still in charge. And it had lost a lot of its older, upper-class Whig support. Mm-hmm. Um, the old liberals, like almost stretching back to the kind of French Revolution, those kind of liberals. Um, the liberals' traditional base was uh, religious dissenters opposed to the Church of England, uh, their stranglehold on education and unfair taxation, because... Um, people who were non-conformists had to pay tithes mm-hmm. um and those things had started to matter less by 1906 um and in the absence of kind of a a, a new constituency the remainder of the liberals had started kind of collaborating with the incipient labor movement mm-hmm. like i say wink and nod arrangements not standing in the same seats where it might split the vote that kind of thing um labor candidates had started to pop up on their own supported and funded by the trade unions um and the traditional liberal ideology had started to give away to limited support for state intervention. Mm-hmm. So pensions uh, for war vet- like war widows and things like that. Um, this wasn't just for selfless reasons, obviously. Um, the Boer War at the start of the century had shown that Britain's like manpower was in a desperate situation. Uh, a number of soldiers... That came like working class soldiers came through that were disqualified from military service just because they weren't healthy enough. Mm. They were, you know, riddled with disease. They were underweight. They had breathing problems. All that kind of thing. Um, the economy was in a depression. Tax receipts had dropped, and ultimately, this new state intervention and new kind of tax and spend policy was designed at getting Big Daddy Albion a new battleship mm. for kind of competing with other European powers. Um, Lloyd George, like a speech from Lloyd George, is typical of the kind of attitude of the Liberals at this point. Uh, when the government sent the hat round to workmen to pay for the dreadnoughts, they all dropped in their coppers. But then we went round Belgravia, and there has been such a howl ever since that it has well nigh deafened us. So he's kind of waging a limited class warfare, but on an imperial basis. Yeah, um, that's a, a tradition in the Liberal Party that's kind of started with. I wouldn't say started, but kind of was manifested with Joseph Chamberlain, who was um, quite a prominent MP earlier in the century, um, and had resulted in most of those imperial, like the more overtly imperialist liberals, uh, moving to the Tory party. So Lloyd George, he was made Chancellor in 1908, and he proposed his first budget in 1909. He proposed a progressive income tax of 3.75% for incomes below £2,000, equivalent to about £190,000 today, <laughs> um, with a higher rate of 5% on incomes greater than £2,000, uh, 190, and an additional super tax of 2.5% on incomes exceeding £5,000, which is equivalent to about £480,000 today. More controversially, the budget also included a proposal for the introduction of complete land valuation and a 20% tax on increases in value when the land changed hands. So basically, Mm. a a land tax and an inheritance tax. Mm. 
This was bent by a huge opposition from the Tory Unionists, who, it might shock you to learn, were all huge landowners. <laughs> <laughs> the Conservatives also believed that money could be raised by tariffs on imports, which would help protect British industry and cement relations within the empire. So it's an early form of like imperial, imperial tariffs, mm. binding the empire together as an economic unit. This would have meant higher prices on food, which obviously is a no-no to not only the liberals, middle-class, like, artisan supporters, mm -hmm. like, shopkeeper supporters, but also to the kind of working-class institutions like trade unions and things like that that are starting to kind of support the liberals. Um, those higher prices on food as well would have benefited the agricultural landowners, like I say, Tories. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, obviously... This Britain, and I don't understand it at all. It's so different. I know. <laughs> It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. It's um, like I've got into the time machine and it just worked out into a completely different world. <laughs> and obviously the tariffs are directly opposite to the liberal ideology yeah. of supporting free trade. That's what's made Britain great, all that kind of stuff. So although the Liberals had an unassailable majority in the Commons, most of those upper-class Whigs we mentioned earlier and the Liberal imperialists who had split mm. after Irish Home Rule um, had formed a huge Conservative and Unionist majority in the Lords. Mm -hmm. The House of Lords was a lot more influential then than it is today. Um, they had opposed the Reform Acts that enfranchised property owners, but had eventually lost most of those battles, um, including losing the, losing the right to vote by proxy in 1868. They were subjected to the intolerable burden of actually having to turn up to vote. Before 1868, they could just send a servant to vote for them. That's... So great. <laughs> That's so Victorian. It is. It is. It's like, oh, I've got to vote today. I've got to vote today to make sure that I stay being wealthy. But I am already in my pyjamas. But uh, I'm already on my fainting couch. <laughs> I've already got one of those weird, like, tall hats. I've got a candle in, like, a brass candlestick holder. And I've just dined on bread and cheese in front of a fire. I'm being menaced by the ghosts of my, business, my former business partners. <laughs> I cannot possibly vote. <laughs> you there, boy. Vote against the vote against the banning of sending children up chimneys. Tell them there's more of the grave than the gravy train about this. <laughs> um, they had let some liberal legislation through, mm -hmm. the Lords. Uh, they let through the Trade Union Disputes Act, which exempted unions from being sued for industrial action. I guess because they thought it wouldn't be that important. Remember, they're not... By and large, mm. not huge manufacturers necessarily. Yeah. They're agricultural landowners, so give a fuck. Yeah. Um, but they had blocked bills associated with kind of traditional liberal ideologies, so the Church of England stuff, which discriminated against nonconformists. They object they blocked um a liberal reform on plural voting. So up to nineteen forty eight, right? I didn't yeah. realise this. Up to nineteen forty eight, people affiliated with a university were allowed to vote in both a university constituency and their home constituency. And property owners could vote both in the constituency where their property lay and the one where they lived if the two were different. Therefore, some university-educated property owners could potentially vote in three different constituencies. That's awesome. It's incredible. Up until 48? Up until 1948. Fantastic. It's a great country. I won't hear, <laughs> any, I won't hear anything against it. It's definitely fine. I won't hear anything against it, especially not some kind of massive catastrophe that drowns it. Um, uh, they also, how could they drown it? I'm going to vote in three different places <laughs> to not be drowned. One high house, one low house, and one in the middle. Um, they also voted down like licensing laws, which were like uh, prohibition, mm -hmm. like teetotal 
laws and things like that. The Liberals didn't even try to pass things like Welsh church establishment and yeah. uh, Irish home rule because they knew that the Tory majority, including the 15 C of E bishops, <laughs> would just vote it down. Uh, it's really good now that um, the high-ranking members of the Church of England are just in the Lords. <laughs> yeah. There's not as many of them anymore. It's a really good job so, that we've only got a literally, the, than a dozen. literally the only con- other country in the world that has uh, churchmen in its uh, legislature is Iran. Is it? I think so, yeah. I don't think there's that in many. Saudi Arabia? Um, well, they don't have a proper legislative body because they have a monarchical system. But I was told that women are allowed to, <laughs> allowed to be elected in by, by Mohammed bin Salman told me. Um, so, with this budget, the Lords were entitled by convention to reject but to not amend finance bills. Mm-hmm. So they hadn't rejected a budget for two centuries. So what common majority parties would do is they'd insert certain provisions, kind of tangentially related to the budget, mm-hmm. into the budget so that they would just automatically pass through the Lords because they never vetoed it. Um... This time through, however, the measures were so kind of radical and progressive and so intolerable to the Tory majority that they vetoed the budget, making it clear in their rejection that the only way they would pass the budget was with an electoral mandate, i.e. calling a general election. So this is where kind of the heart of this particular constitutional crisis happens. Parliament has won its sovereignty in the Glorious Revolution and the Civil War, things like that, taking over from the monarch as the font of all authority and law in England. But what happened when the two constituent bodies of Parliament, the Commons and the Lords, conflicted? Who should who should win? Yeah. The Commons is democratically elected, but there's no particular democratic mandate in the way that Parliament has functioned that says Parliament must be democratic. We draw our our mandate to rule from the people. Yeah. There's nothing like that, except over time that's kind of crept into people's general understandings and customs around the way that Parliament works. Yeah. It's it's fucking embarrassingly vague yeah. the way that Parliament works um, in this regard. So it's not clear that Lloyd George originally intended the budget to provoke the Lords to f- like force a showdown, but he certainly engaged with that intent after the rejection. He gave a speech at Limehouse in 1909 in which he said that a fully equipped Duke costs as much to keep up as two dreadnoughts but was much less easy to scrap. He said, the question will be asked, should 500 men, ordinary men, chosen accidentally from among the unemployed, override the judgment, the deliberate judgment, of millions of people who are engaged in the industry which makes the wealth of the country? That is one question. Another will be, who ordained that a few should have the land of Britain as a prerequisite, as a perquisite, sorry? Who made 10,000 people owners of the soil and the rest of us trespassers in the land of our birth? Man. Lloyd George, right? Yeah. When you compare him before the war to after the war, yeah. he's just like the original Blairite melt, isn't he? He really is. It's really, really disappointing. Yeah, yeah. He was, you know, like, when you can give speeches like that, I'm not mad at that. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's yeah. wanted more warships. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he was doing it for that, but you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. um, so the constitutional solution to this budget being voted down was to hold a general election, which they did in January 1910. The Liberals scraped a majority in a hung parliament, taking 274 seats to the Tories' 272, with the Labour and Irish MPs making up a workable Liberal majority. Is this sounding similar yet? Is this sounding familiar? As the price for support, Irish MPs demanded that the Lords be stripped of their veto on bills so they couldn't block Irish Home Rule. Again, mm. is this sounding familiar yet? <laughs> the Lords did pass Lloyd, George original, Lloyd George's original budget, 
with the proviso that the land valuation was dropped, which it was. Asquith, the Liberal leader, seemed to indicate during this January election that if the bill was rejected by the Lords, the government would go to the King for uh, a dissolution of Parliament mm -hmm. on the proviso that if they won, the King would create enough new peers, enough new Liberal peers, mm -hmm. that it would just appoint a majority to the House of Lords that it could then pass the budget through. Yeah. Again, this is the period yeah. when the King yeah. appoints hereditary peers. <laughs> awesome system. It's much better the one now where each time a government's in power they elect a number, they just put in a bunch of people into the Lords. I mean, it's exactly the same yeah. situation today. Yeah, except, except we just don't go through the hassle of asking the King. <laughs> yeah. Um, Asquith seemed to suggest in the election campaign that the King had said he would do this. Mm -hmm. After the election campaign, Edward said he wouldn't. <laughs> um, this was Big Fat Edward the Eighth? Edward the Seventh. Edward the Seventh sounds right. I forgot which I one he was. I don't really know my royals. Um, so he was I know this, is Edward the Failure. Uh, he was like the he was the guy who had all the racehorses and like really loved feasting. Okay. <laughs> that doesn't one, really I, narrow I meant, it down. I like the Edward that likes cats <laughs> <laughs> and musicals in general. Um, so the situation that we are in now, like yeah. we were in at this point, the Liberals have a workable majority, but on the proviso that they pass Irish Home Rules. Mm -hmm. So that means they have to strip the Lords of the power of blocking bills. Except that now you don't just have the Tory Lords opposing a budget, you have all of the Ulster Unionists and their allies in the Commons Conservative Party, which is only a little bit below the Liberals in terms of majority. Um, you have the Ulster Unionists saying that they will block this in Parliament, and indeed in reality. Mm -hmm. um, the Tory leader, Arthur uh, Bona Law, said he would support any measures necessary to prevent an independent Ireland. Edward Carson, the Ulster Unionist leader in the Commons, started overseeing military parades in Belfast. British military officers started signing covenants saying they wouldn't take orders from a Dublin Parliament. And in fact, various regiments in, uh, like uh, Protestant regiments in Ireland, started um, mutinying, and there were various gun-running um, uh, conspiracies like directly related to like Ulster Unionist MPs yeah. and Tory MPs started saying that they were running guns into Ireland to prepare for a, a civil war so it's like oh this sweet little budget it's like oh we'll just sidestep this oh my god <laughs> um, so the Liberals yeah are bound to curtail the power of the Lords yeah so they had to hold another election in order to do this in December 1910. This time the Liberals included in their manifesto an act to prevent the House of Lords from permanently blocking legislation. The Lords would be allowed three passes on all legislation for a maximum of two years. Mm -hmm. In between this, the King who had refused, Edward VII, had the terrible timing to have died. George V was more conservative than his father. Um, he was eventually convinced, George that is, was eventually convinced that the threat of civil war in Ireland was a worse outcome than the threat of a 5% wealth tax to build his own Navy's battleships <laughs> um, and did promise to threaten to create the Liberal peers necessary to get the Lords reform through, yeah. um, which assured Irish Home Rule passed. It was passed through in 1912 and was due to be implemented in September 1914 when no important world <laughs> events were there to get in the way. Um, no, of course not. It uh, ran headlong into the First World War and was suspended. It was that close. Yeah. It was that close. Um, so, like, 
That brief explanation shows you how, like, the fault lines of the constitutional crisis in 1910, it ran through all the major power centres. Yeah. Uh, democratically mandated, or, you know, close as, commons, was stymied by an unelected house and, ultimately, the king. Yep. Who, the entire decision-making process was based on the opinion and likes of one man. Mm-hmm. Um, supposedly a neutral arbiter, but with distinct preferences towards, kind of, maintaining the status quo and not <laughs> abolishing the House of Lords. Um, when Parliament had originally won this power, like I say, in the Glorious Revolution, there was no such thing as a democratic mandate. And so they'd let the kind of constitution drift aimlessly from contradiction and crisis, relying on conventional wisdom and clandestine arrangements until there was no way of avoiding a clash. And then that's when kind of power relations come out. That's when you really have to brute force that stuff. Mm. The trappings of legitimacy fall away and you're left with a fight for power. Now, it didn't get that far in England. But as I mentioned, nationalists and unionists in Ireland were importing guns and drilling soldiers. Mm. That's what happens when those authoritative, like constitutional questions get out of hand. Yeah. That's that's how it works. So now how does this relate to Brexit? So the fault lines in Brexit are similar in nature but multiplied. So you've got a party at odds with itself for decades, um, until a chancellor tries to solve the issue. So you've got Lloyd George trying to actually pass progressive legislation. You've got Cameron trying to resolve this other problem within his own party, mm-hmm. um, trying to resolve a, ultimately a political issue. Um, the non-binding referendum, in the same way as the Liberals, it has democratic power, but it doesn't really have any constitutional power. Mm. It's They're right in the way that it's non-binding, but then when... Is a democratic vote? When, when when are we supposed to accept that a democratic vote has actual political power and yeah. not just legal and constitutional power? Yeah. You know what I mean. Um, but the fact was that these were based ultimately in like different conflicting interests, not one unavoidable assurance of doom. The Liberals had to win three full elections and get the King to agree just to get one budget passed. And that just because the Lords were opposed. Mm. No Conservative government would have had to do the same. Um, a coalition of these like reactionary forces essentially vetoed the actions of a democratically mandated government. Mm. Um, now, Britain famously doesn't have a written constitution where all of these key elements are taken into account. It doesn't have... A, a it doesn't it has a an unwritten constitution it doesn't have a codified constitution yeah. which lays out exactly how all of these different pieces of law are supposed to like work and how they're spoke more importantly how they're able to be changed now i have read some really fine blogs about how the back of the cart is a weird <laughs> well that's the perfect thing isn't it when when you when it comes to like the european court of human rights or the human rights mm. act the thing that kind of the old Eurosceptics, like the pre-2016 Eurosceptics, mm. would have always said, was, ah, it's fine, we already have a British Bill of Rights, it's called the Magna Carta. Yep. And it's like, well, yeah, but also, no, you <laughs> don't have that. Also, how many how many like other constitutions have so many provisions regarding bridges? <laughs> also, the Magna Carta famously repealed. Okay, fair enough, Mauritania, fair enough. <laughs> But yeah, Magna Carta was famously repealed. Yes, it was very re- quickly. It was repealed. I think it was it was repealed by the Pope. <laughs> John just said, "Oh, they're making me sign this thing," and the Pope said, "Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> nah I got you, bro. You're not paying for no bridges." <laughs> and yeah, a lot of Brexiters talked about like yeah. how this vote was for sovereignty. Yeah, and of course that's constitutionally a contradiction because yep. the British Constitution has all sovereignty rested in Parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but this wasn't done in a parliamentary way. This, no. the, the Brexit referendum wasn't conducted in Parliament by parliamentary representatives, so therefore no. doesn't it doesn't really have any power. And that is a problem. Like Parliament's legal powers are constitutionally superior to the powers of the government. Mm-hmm. That's what the Gina Miller case was about. So she brought up another problem with the fact that this referendum couldn't just be taken whole cloth and allowed the government to do it. The government then had to submit it to Parliament as well, which mm-hmm. it passed. Um, it has problems with the way that devolution has been worked. So there's something called the Sewell Convention, which um, is, a again, a constitutional convention, not actual law. Yeah. That says that um, basically devolved territories, Wales and Scotland have, and Northern Ireland, have opt-outs of um, laws that the UK Parliament passes. They are functionally a power centre in themselves Mm. in that they can stop that kind of thing. Now, that was always a convention, but is it actually a law? Mm. It's in, I think it's in like some of the statutes, but it's not generally considered to be something that they can do. That's another problem with the way that the relations between the institutions of government in this country just contradict each other Mm. because they've been bodged for so long. Mm. You know, they're formalized, like constitutions ultimately are like formalized versions of power relations, right? Mm. The British constitution has only had democratic legitimacy shoddily grafted onto it in the same way that its relationship with the new devolved territories has been shoddily grafted onto existing stuff. There was a thesis advanced by Perry Anderson and Tom Nairn in the 60s. It's it's called like the Nairn-Anderson thesis, which is quite scientific for like British Marxists in the 60s. Yeah. They didn't, I don't feel like they usually go for that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I haven't read enough like 60s Trotsky, Trotskyist stuff. Yeah. Um, but they surmised that, so Britain had a bourgeois re- revolution, but it was kind of stillborn. It was yeah. precocious. Um, when the French have their bourgeois revolution, the French revolution, you have the middle class taking control, instituting firm like legal mandates and documents and setting out the relationships between the way that they would run their government. Mm -hmm. Um, In Britain, they argued that um, they'd had an incomplete bourgeois revolution, that is, kind of factory owners, industrial concerns, etc., never completely took over from feudal landowners, that they kind of melded with them. Mm -hmm. And so the lack of revolutionary upheaval means that they didn't produce more advanced forms of like rational capitalism. They don't have a system that allows for larger scale kind of industry things that would benefit the bourgeois but also need political will and almost political revolutions to actually occur for them to take place it's not a clear break from feudalism you know they kind of integrated which is why you end up with the monarch and the house of lords Mm -hmm. and yeah i think well the like brexit is more serious than 1910 obviously i mean 1910 got out of hand quite fast yeah but brexit is different and probably more serious because you could probably argue almost any position has the potential for democratic backing for constitutional backing yeah everybody involved thinks they have right on their side mm-hmm. brexiteers say respect the referendum uh labor says respect the referendum um remainers will say it was non-binding uh parliament didn't get a say um the lords have tried to revise it brexiteers have said that the lords are traitors mm-hmm. <laughs> you know as you can see the the mechanism of the way that Parliament works breaks down so much that you have to actually identify enemies and start to kind of deal with raw 
power and influence mm-hmm. rather than necessarily relying on the machinery of government to, to just fix it to fix it and make your decisions a reality mm-hmm. you know um, and it, it just like rather than seeing it as just like an irreparable breakdown you, I think you just have to see it as there are alternatives mm-hmm. coming out of this you know when Remainers, liberal Remainers say there's no way out, the system is, is in crisis, you've got to pay really close attention because that's their, that's their preferences coming out. Mm. That's the things they choose to exclude. There's nothing to prevent a no-deal Brexit being well prepared for in advance by stockpiling enough cash, stockpiling enough stuff, um, retaining kind of basic agreements, doing WTO rules, things mm. like that, the economy will take a hit. It's not without repercussions. Mm. But there are things that you can do. Yeah. I'm not saying there won't be serious repercussions. I'm mm. not saying there won't be society altering. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they, they will be. But when Remainers say, oh, it's impossible, uh, look at how much this will harm the city of London, I kind of think, I want to harm the city of London. Yeah. If this is a way to harm the city yeah. of London, I will do it. Yeah. <laughs> Like, we're not stuck in a suicide pact with these people. No. We're not stuck in some kind of, like, parasitical relationship that we're just going to reform over time. That's done. Mm-hmm. We had that opportunity in 2010. Mm-hmm. And everybody who lined up behind David Cameron and George Osborne in propping up mm-hmm. the finance sector made their priorities and what they were willing to accept very clear. Mm-hmm. Was austerity... Like, it's, they say, oh, it's going to make you so much poorer. And that's a, therefore right. a constitutional and legal crisis. It's not legal to make people poorer, is essentially no. what they're saying. And what all that exposes is austerity wasn't a constitutional crisis. No. Um, the Scottish referendum promises being broken, that mm. wasn't a constitutional crisis. You know, no. you know like uh, George Osborne promising a law that made sure that, you always had, that future governments would have to run a budget surplus. Mm. That wasn't considered a constitutional crisis. No. That was just sensible economics. Yeah. And so it really reveals more about the way that the gloves are off and that people have to exert their preferences much more openly. Mm-hmm. They can't intimate at things. They can't hedge. They can't Overton window it no. as much. They have to come out and actually say it. That's, that's what's behind like political polarisation. The traditional means of expressing politics... Mm have not only atrophied in the last 20 years and now have finally come up against a situation where they have to be used. Politics has to be done again. You have to, you have to talk about your politics and your, your priorities and what you want out of the world. And so many people, so many prominent people, are just not equipped for it. No. You know? And, like, the demand from Remainers to get Labour to pick the Remain side, um, it's a way of trying to set... As we said with the... Um, with Theresa May's Brexit deal and like Remainers supporting it, mm-hmm. it's a way of trying to reset the clock. It's a way to put the system back into an operable state that they understand. Mm-hmm. You have one side Remain, one side Brexit, and we can carry on with business as usual. To put democracy back in a very limited box that can be monitored and controlled by experts, and we can watch the daily politics, and that's how we get mm. how we get informed. It wouldn't help Labour. They don't give a shit about the no. prospects of the Labour Party as long as it's there. Mm-hmm. As long as it's functioning in the way that they think. And in any case, it won't actually... All of this kind of hand-wringing about like, the British Constitution and that, it won't get Parliament or the Constitution back on track. No. Any result out of this results in the same... Any, any kind of... 
outcome of all of this mess yeah. still doesn't solve the basic problem of 10 years of austerity and the financial crisis and the polarisation between rich and poor and the financialization of society and yeah. the closeness of elites to like global corporate interests, all that kind of thing. Like when we talk about, when we laugh, when the British laugh about like Italians hmm. having like 20 governments, that's not because they're stupid. That's because they have an ongoing constitutional crisis that is at the heart of what like it- Italian national politics. Yeah. It, they have unsolvable problems, partially because maybe one block isn't powerful enough to assert its will or however, or persuade the others, however you want to put it. We laugh at people like Catalonia coming out and like, oh, they want their own little country. As if we're somehow, yeah, no. uh, As if we're somehow better than them. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we're thrown into our own kind of political crisis and all of those like high, high... All of those prominent people, those knowledgeable people, those people with so much social capital, suddenly they're looking at it and they don't know what to make of it. No. And like, if anything, now is the time for Labour. There was a really good article by uh, Dan Hind and uh, W.L. Elliot Bulmer. It was in the New Socialist a few months back about how this is the time for Labour to start talking about a new constitution, a written constitution, Mm -hmm. to actually present a new solution to these things rather than repairing what's old because that's what the British state's been doing for fucking centuries and if we well everything's going to be changing because of Brexit so we might as well do that as well yeah those kind of uh, those kind of pressures have always come from like there was a group called Charter 88 Mm -hmm. those kind of pressures have always come from the liberal and the like social democratic side of Labour Mm -hmm. like if you like the Labour right Um, because the Labour Party has in general was too embedded within the constitution and the political system as it existed. Mm-hmm. When they came in, they yeah. kind of came into a political system that was already there and yeah. they ingratiated with them on the council level, on the like mm-hmm. parliamentary level, on ministers, all that kind of stuff. They accepted that as the price of their entry. But it's not working anymore. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, these electoral norms that we've become used to, these, this political system we've become used to, needs to die it needs to go off because like this isn't the end. No. There's no, no, no. solving this. Going, there's no going. there's no repairing this. Like and I'd say a hundred years is probably long enough to kind of put up with this situation. Mm-hmm. Like it's been a hundred years since that. And really, other than abolishing elected hereditary peers and the implementation of the Human Rights Act, there's not been a significant amount of constitutional mm. um, movement. And it's probably time. You know? Yeah. For England as well as like Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland because those things are coming to a head as well. Yeah. You know, give the Senate real power. Um, It needs to be dealt with because otherwise it's just, it's going to be like talking about Brexit forever. And what we said earlier, you were going to give bricks to Brexit. No, I was... um, Brexit to Brexit. So you, as in anyone who kept talking about Brexit after the cut-off point of May 2019, yep. you were going to walk up behind them and hit over the back of the head with a brick. Yep, definitely. <laughs> joking. Not joking. <laughs> joking. Police, joking. joking. Listeners, <laughs> not joking. <laughs> do it. Do it. Saying not, you know you want to. Saying joking is binding and will get me out of any kind of legal 
Snafu. That is the constitution of we don't talk about the weather. It is. The constitution is wage suppression. <laughs> wage suppression specifically in Oscarji. And veiled threats. <laughs> Not veiled. <laughs> uh, okay, that's, up for, that's us for this week. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can follow us at WDT80W underscore podcast. You can follow me at BM Bergamot and follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing. And we will see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Fighting am the least about the fighting game.